guys can grab a seat. If you have your, is this on? Run the battery dead. Maybe. We're so professional here. It's on. It's good. It's on. All right, Isaiah 6 is where we're going to land. Um, if you're new here, what, here's kind of what we've been doing. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. Um, it's going to take us, I don't know, two and a half years to get all the way through the book of Luke. We're putting a pin in that just for a couple weeks um, to kind of wrestle with this idea of encountering God. What does it actually look like uh, for us to have a real-life encounter with Him? Um, are we good, Sarah? Are we not good? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay in here and look pretty just for a second. Okay, but I've already committed to this, so I'm going to do it. You ready? Uh, if you have your phones, just get ready to take a picture. Here. You're welcome. All right, Isaiah 6. So we're, we've kind of put a pin in Luke. We're going to finish Luke Easter of 2018, 19, something like that. Um, we put a pin in it just to try to figure out what does an encounter with God actually look like? Um, what, what do we mean when we say we want to encounter God? I've met with a lot of people and I felt this myself. Like, I just want to see him. I just want to feel him. I just want to have a real life encounter with him. Um, but what we started to find, and, and as we're kind of using Isaiah 6 as the backdrop for this, is when we have to define what encounter really means because it might not mean what we think. Um, so Isaiah 6, and now I'm going to break a rule. I know we're not technically in Luke, but... Um, put your finger in Isaiah 6 and Luke 7. Don't hate me. Um, we're going to be in both of those this morning. So we are going to be in Luke a little bit. Um, so what we're trying to do then is just wrap our mind around, do we really want an encounter? What does an encounter actually look like? Um, and the best way to explain it is maybe have a total paradigm shift. So when we say we want to experience God, uh, what that means right now in our minds probably isn't biblically what that actually means. So when we say we want to have an experience, we want to encounter um, over last week, this week, and next week, we're going to talk about what that encounter looks like and kind of have, uh, hopefully, a, a full paradigm shift. Because here's what A.W. Tozer says. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when we talk about encountering God, what comes to your mind when you think about God? Where does our mind race to? And, and if you're having a hard time, uh, maybe just look at your life and maybe some of the decisions you've made. And did we really count God's opinion to matter? Or think about what's worrying you or, or you're anxious or fearful about right now. That instance in your life is proving what you really think God is. So do we really think God is sovereign over all? He owns everything. If we do, then I wouldn't have sat and looked at my bank account last night and go, all right, this is not going to be a good month, right? And that anxious would not have welled up in my soul if I really believed that my God owns everything, right? Um, so the paradigm shift is what, what we're trying to get to, what we're trying to understand in Scripture. Uh, just like my daughter, Six, and she believes that if she has any kind of rectangular card on her, uh, that's money. She sees mommy, daddy pay with a rectangular card. So she, uh, in this point in her mind, she can walk into any store, any restaurant, buy anything she wants as long as she's got a card. 
doesn't matter business card. It doesn't monopoly money. It does not matter as long as that is exchanged hands. And so there's going to come a day where I get to laugh at her when that doesn't work, right? Uh, I just, I enjoy watching people be humble to anyone else, <laughs> right? Like uh, just in a, so we'll be here next week and then we'll be at the lake. And then the next week, college students will start trickling back in. But here's a conversation I promise you I'm going to have a paradigm shift, um, they're going to say, hey, uh, I know this is a really qu- awkward question. You're a pastor. You're the only one I can talk to about this. How do you do laundry? Because when I took off clothes at home, they, I don't have any clean clothes. And you can spot them about two weeks in. You're like, bro, you just turned that inside out. That's still dirty. You've got to wash that. You can just start seeing them going through campus. So the paradigm shift for them is that my mommy did all my laundry. Now, I want to make fun of that kid, but that was me. I remember vividly calling from Georgia Southern, hey, mom, like, what button do I turn this to? So uh, I'll just go ahead and say that before she calls me on it later. <clears throat> so this paradigm shift is where we are. So Isaiah 6 is kind of the backdrop. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. It's the backdrop that we're going to try to understand who God is and what he's done for us. Um, so Isaiah 6, picking up in verse 1, and I'm going to go through this quickly. We covered this last week, uh, but it just sets the scene for us this morning. In the king, year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5 is kind of the crux of this story. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. So last week we talked a lot about what are the seraphims saying when they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Um, We can try to put a definition to it, but if we can fully define God's holiness, then that means that we fully understand it and we cannot. Um, So the simplest definition is that God is so set apart from us that an actual encounter with him would not be like, what's up, man? Like, I got some questions for you, but I heard there's like this buffet somewhere in heaven, so I'm going to find those, and when I come back, we're talking about the platypus, because that that animal, man, I just don't understand it. What is it? What is the platypus? What made you? No, like, that's not going to be the interaction we have with God when we see him. Isaiah, Moses, John, and Revelation, when they saw God, they thought they were ruined, Revelations, John says, I fell on the floor as though dead, right? Moses, when he sees God, God says, hey, I'm going to pass by. You can only see my back because if you see my face, it's going to kill you. So when we encounter this holy God, we had to spend all of last week trying to define what that actually means. An encounter with God is not just, what's up, man? I'm gl- hey, give me a second, though, because I've got some other things to do. So when we encounter God through our day-to-day life, it looks more like that. But when we see biblically an encounter with God, he's so holy, he's so set apart, that it would ruin us. It would ruin us. But he didn't stop there. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the fire. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. 
So what I want to try to do in the next 15 minutes is put some real framework around what just happened, that his sin has been atoned for. So here's Isaiah. He thought he was dead. He thought he was ruined. And Jesus encounter, or God encountered him through the angels, and they pursued him. Huge distinction that we have to understand. So Luke 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 11, so you guys can flip. <clears throat> Luke 7, 11 is the main text. Isaiah is kind of the backdrop for what does that really look like that he picked up the tongs and touched that to his lips and atoned his sin? Luke 7, verse 11. Soon after he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd were with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and had a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave to him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And if you underline, underline this next part. God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding countries. Now here's where, I mean, if, if you've been in here for any amount of time, here's what we always try to do. Um, we want to take this from just a narrative story, and we don't want this to be fiction. We don't want this to be something we've created. We want to put ourselves in this story. Um, so for the sake of this morning, uh, picture yourself just standing on the corner of these two rows coming up. So you've got Jesus and his posse that's walking down this road. They're high-fiving. They're celebrating. They're dancing because Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been teaching. This crowd that fall, is following Jesus is on fire, right? I mean, just picture you're walking into a huge stadium. Your team is the one that's going to win this game. You're confident. You're anybody you meet. You're saying, come on, you've got to come with me. You've got to come watch this, right? So you've got this huge crowd coming around this corner, and you're just standing there kind of keep peeking over, seeing all this loud noise celebration coming on. And then you look over to your left, and you see a funeral procession coming by, right? You see up front a grieving mom, obviously broken. Um, the word here, considerable. There's a huge crowd following after. So could you imagine just that awkwardness that you're standing and going, oh, man, these two parties are about to hit. Like, so these people are high-fiving and having fun. These people are crying and are broken, and they're about to hit at this intersection. This is going to get real awkward. Like, you're just standing here watching all of this take place. So when these two parties finally collide, um, Jesus sees what's going on. He walks right up to this woman and says, hey, uh, quit crying. Now, I'm, I'm pretty heartless. If you've known me for any amount of time, mercy is not my deal. Uh, like counseling, if you want counseling for me, go to Matt or Jeremy or one of these guys. Don't come to me because it's just going to be very quick. Quit doing that, you moron, and then move on. That's going to be my counseling background. So if you want, no, I have no empathy. But I would never walk up to, now this is just my, I would never walk up to a grieving widow who the scripture says two things. Her only son has passed away and she's a widow. <clears throat> so in this time, that was it. She had no one else to take care of her. There was no government assistance that was going to be rolling in. There was no community that was going to be rallying around her. It was all the father, or the husband's job to take care of the wife. 
And when the husband passed away, it's all the son's responsibilities to take care of the mom. So not only is she a widow, that she's already gone through this pain once, and not only is she having to bury her only son, but she's also wrestling with this fact, like, what am I going to do? She's probably past working age. How am I going to provide for myself? So these tears that are coming down her face are not just tears of my son is now dead, but it's my husband is gone, my son is gone, and I have no way to provide for myself. So Jesus, being Jesus, walks up and goes, hey, quick crying. Now, just in my imagination as I'm reading this, um, there's the best friend of the mom that's standing right behind the mom that's starting to pull out her earrings, right? Like, what did this dude just say to my girl? It's like, it's about to go, I don't care who your name is, Jesus, I will pull your hair and we'll scratch it right here on this concrete. But that's not what takes place. There had to be some kind of compassion in Jesus' face for her just to stop. And for everyone around the room, you've got to realize the broken and tears are coming, but the ones that have been following Jesus, this is what they've been following him for. So for him to walk up and say, quit, quit your crying, they all just leaned in as much as possible because they had expectations that God was about to do something through Jesus. They'd already experienced it. They experienced a man with a withered hand. They'd experienced Jesus teaching like no other one has taught before. So they were ready for what's about to take place. Now, people were already calling Jesus a rabbi, even though he had not gone through the schooling, he had not, but the way he teached, they called him a rabbi. So for him to walk up to where the pallbearer stood and to stop it and put his hand on the bear was something that rabbis didn't do because that would make them ceremonially unclean, right? They kept a distance from all this kind of stuff to be holy, to be set apart, but on their own terms, not what Christ has asked them to do. So he walks up to this. Everyone's starting to gasp. A rabbi would never do this. And the dude gets up by Jesus' voice. He arises. Okay, now here's where we just have to just let this permeate in our mind a little bit. This is not Harry Potter. This is not a fiction that we're reading and talking about 2,000 years later. This actually happened, and we can talk about the supremacy of Scripture later, but when we're preaching this and we're talking about this, this actually happened. There are witnesses all around Jesus that saw this, that Luke is writing this to Theopolis so he can be sure of what he has heard, that this actually happened. So the guy sits up, and Jesus kind of goes, hey man, uh, you might want to go to your mom, just maybe give her a hug first. Because she's, she's a little sad. You, you might want to go talk to her. And I love what happens. And this is, what we, this is where we're trying to land. Jesus never encounters us in the way that we think he would. When Jesus walks up to this um, funeral procession going through, the last thing that anyone would have imagined is that homeboy was about to get up. So when we talk about an encounter with Jesus... We talk about how is Jesus going to encounter us? What is this going to look like? Probably in your lowest of lows is when Jesus is really going to encounter you. Probably when you have no other hope, when you're this mom, or better yet, when you're this son, when you have no other hope, that's when Christ is going to encounter you the most strongest because you're going to justify anything else. That's just human nature. That's what we do. If things are good, then we're going to say, well, no, that was just, that was just the medicine, right? That was just really good doctors that took care of that situation. Or was it? Because who invented the medicine that your loved one got? And who gave the brain to that doctor that just healed your loved one? 
So we try to make all these justifications and work around miracles when it's always God the whole time. So when we're at our lowest of lows, that's when Jesus comes to encounter us. But here's to me, if we were to underline, if we were to, what is the main point of this text? It's verse 16, that God has visited his people. That God has come to his people. So when we understand encountering, here's, what, here's the paradigm shift that we're going to try to land. When we think about encountering God, when we think about encountering Jesus, what it always goes to is what's our responsibility, right? What do I have to do to encounter him? What do I have to do to pursue him? I want to see him. I want to know him. What is my responsibility? But the entirety, the entire narrative of scripture is the opposite. It's God always coming to us. God is always pursuing us. God is always encountering us. That God has visited his people. And so the two examples here is the first one is the son, the son's death, that God came into the son's existence in death. Now here's where, uh, <clears throat> if you haven't noticed, you'll notice if you hang out with us a little bit. We are really particular here about words. And part of it is just the church as a whole, but part of it is just the nature I grew up in. One of the rules in my family is, man, we're okay keeping to ourselves, but if you ask me my opinion, I'm going to tell you. So if you don't want our opinion, then that's fine. You do you. You ruin your life. That's okay. Whatever you want to do is your prerogative. But if you ask me a question, I'm going to pick my words carefully, and I'm going to tell you what the honest truth is. In the same way here, when we talk about, and if you ever hear anyone say this, tell me or recognize it because they're going to get ridiculed. I might beat them with my belt after this. If you ever hear someone from this fancy stage that we have, I'm not really going to beat them, by the way, um, just so you know. Don't call the police. I said something about beating up dads last week, and that got me arrested, so I'm going to not be violent this week. Um, Ricky mentioned it this morning. This is not the church. This is, if we'll never say, welcome to church, right? Now, I know that's, okay, you're just being semantics. Yeah, okay, but words matter, right? So welcome to the church. No, this is a Parks and Rec building. This place smelt like BO and sunscreen when we got here this morning. Thank God that Jennifer Staples vacuumed because it smells a lot better in here than it was. Tomorrow, there will be probably 60 kids running around here playing Xbox on these seats. There's nothing special about what goes on in this room. What the church is, is this group of people that has chosen to gather together. That is the church. So we don't go to church. We go to a Parks and Rec building where the church gathers. If we ever get a facility, which who knows if we will, um, we'll probably put a sign up very similar to what Christ's family has on Highway 60. If you go down, it says the gathering place of Christ's family church. So what this is right now, this is just a gathering room. So what do we call this when this is not the church? We call this the what? The gathering, right? This is the gathering of the church. Now, yeah, are those words small? Sure. But the meaning behind that really matters. So when we start going through here, we have to be really careful on what we're talking about. Because as we would see Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we all have sinned, Romans 6.23 would say that the wages of sin is death. So if we're going to pick and identify someone that is us in this story, it's not the mom and it's not the crowd, it's the dead son. Because if all have sinned, Okay, so we're all born into a sinful nature. We've all sinned, right? Anyone want to argue with me that you haven't sinned? This would be fun. You know, I, I mentioned earlier I love humbling people and paradigm shifts. 
Anyone want to try to admit that you have not sinned before? I have little ones. Trust me, they sin. My one-year-old bites. Bree does not bite me. I don't know where she learned that. That is just sin nature in a little demon kid, right? (laughs) Just kidding. Too far? Sure. So if we've all sinned, then the penalty of sin is death. And here's where I'm going with this, and we'll, we'll bring this up over and over again. The main semantics that you'll hear and understand and pick up within the Christian life is this. I was once bad, but now I'm good. Don't do bad things. You need to do good things. We need to do more good than we do bad. Don't drink, don't cuss, don't do any of that because that stuff is bad. We need to be good people. The only problem with that language is it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Even when people would come to Jesus and say, hey, good teacher, what would he always stop them and say? Why do you call me good? No one's good except for the Father alone. So if good is not a word that Jesus would describe himself in, then the church should never describe ourselves as a word good. So this is not a good versus bad thing. Scripture doesn't say, because we're all sinners, for the wages of sin is you're going to be a bad person. No, the wages of sin is death. So to understand the gospel is to understand where we've come from, that we're not all bad people, we're all dead people. That without Christ interfering our funeral possession, we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. There's nothing we could do. Ephesians 1 says it like this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, we have to get words matter. We have to get rid of this good, bad language. The biblical term is that we were all dead in our sins. Because of the sins, Romans 8 would say, because of the sins of Adam, we're all born. We're all born cursed. There's nothing we can do. So why does my one-year-old bite? Why do my kids lie to me? Not because they've seen us do that, because that's ingrained in who we are. We're We're born dead to our sins and our trespasses. Not bad. We're not born bad kids. We're born dead in our sins. So the first miracle that takes place here is the parallel for all of us is that when Christ has encountered us, he doesn't make you a good person now that you are bad. He makes you a live person that you once were dead. So, I mean, maybe for some of you, this is just, uh, oh, I know this. Let's move on, Pastor. Okay. But this is a big paradigm shift for a lot of us. Especially if you've grown up in church or you've just kind of been on the periphery of church, what you saw was a bunch of people trying to be good and trying to act like they've got their stuff together. They wear nice clothes. They don't cuss on Sundays, but man, hit them on a Tuesday afternoon, they're good to go, right? So they see all these people trying to be good, and you've just kind of got the gospel painted in a really negative light. This is where the word hypocrite starts to come in, right? That we just try to be good not realizing that you can't be good. You were dead. Christ has made you alive. Christ didn't make you good. Christ has made you alive. He's brought you from the death that we have all been born into. So what then does that mean for us? If that's the foundation of the gospel, if that's what salvation is, if we've been raised with Christ, what does that mean for us then? It means the rest of our life we're going to have a struggle with putting to death our earthly flesh and walking in our new identity of a new life in Christ. 
the entirety of our life is going to look like that battle. And so for us, that means the mom. So if we've been, if you are a Christian, if you've been crossover from death to life, what you've probably encountered, and most of us are probably encountering in this room this morning, is something I'm just going to call death thoughts. And I don't mean suicide. I mean death thoughts. Thoughts that come from the death that once was you, but now that we've been made alive together in Christ, it's the process of sanctification, but it's always pulling us back. Here's what I mean. There's probably two thoughts that are going in this mom's mind as they're walking down this funeral procession. I don't deserve this, or I deserve this. So she's walking her last son, her only son, to his final resting place. There's two thoughts going through her mind. Either, what did I do to deserve this? Or, no, 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 I, I do deserve this. And both of those thoughts are rooted in death, not in life with Christ. Both of those thoughts are death thoughts that are coming from our old identity as dead, depraved souls, not our new identities as sons and daughters of the king. So here's what I mean. Um, I deserve this. We've all probably said this before, especially if you're like me, if you're just hard on yourself. We understand if we've done something wrong, then just punish me, get it over with, and let's move on, right? Like I admit, yeah, I messed up. I've, I've, I've did this. I shouldn't have done this. So instead of walking in guilt, instead of walking in shame, just go ahead and find me for that. Go ahead and, yes, officer, I was speeding. Let me get a ticket pay it so that I can be done with it and I can move on because I deserve this. And all of this comes from a level of comparison, that we're constantly comparing ourselves with people around us, that we think it's just so ingrained in us that we think good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people, right? I mean, yesterday we were driving around the mountain. Um, we were going from 129 back over to Suchus, and I mean, it was one of the curviest roads I've ever been on. And this uh, fellow, I'll use a nice phrase, this fellow decided to pass my family on this curvy mountain road. So I, I maybe, I don't know, did I articulate anything, Bree? Okay. So I was good, right? It's no good, don't worry. The whole time, though, what I was secretly thinking, what I've kept from my bride, was a death thought of, I can't wait till he's in a ditch. And I'm going to pull up and I'm going to wave at him and I'm going to keep on going. Because he is a bad person and he deserves what he gets. Now, before you start secretly judging me, which you all are doing right now, I can see it in your eyes, we all do this, right? We all, when someone passes us, we pray that a cop would get them, right? When someone gets a job promotion or when someone gets an A in the class that they slept all the way through, we get frustrated because that's a bad person. None of us walk into a jail and hear what some of these people have done and said, eh, you're good. No, bad people deserve bad things. Good people deserve good things. So we are just ingrained in us. I deserve this. This mom, and this is a cultural thing that we just maybe don't understand. Uh, the generational family curses that were going on in those days were a real thing. That that mom could have been walking to this funeral going, because of the sins of my father or because of my sins, my family has now deserved this. Because I didn't do this right. That's why God has chosen to take these people away. It is my fault. My family deserves this. I'm, I don't deserve to have a husband. I don't deserve to have a son. I deserve this. We've probably all met those people that just walk through life understanding that they deserve what they get. Or maybe she was on the other side. Maybe she's walking, literally cussing God out in her mind going, this is how you repay me. Like, I've done good. Everything you've asked me to do, I've done to the best of my 
ability. I tithe, I do this, I go to church, I serve, I give away everything to, I, I can to people around me. And this is how you pay me back, God? I deserve better. I don't deserve this. I deserve my son. I deserve, and so we just kind of throw this temper tantrum at God's feet, going, I, I deserve better. You owe me. You owe me more than this. And I would argue we're acting like that because we think we're good people. Or that if you think you deserve the punishment, then you think you're a bad person. So we're walking in this paradigm of good and bad. I've been a good person, I don't deserve this. Or I've been a bad person, I do deserve this. Those are death thoughts. That's not the identity that Christ has given us if we've been raised with him. So if you have your Bibles, this is the last time I'll make you flip. Colossians 3. Colossians 3 just outlines this point perfectly. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, again, notice the language. Not if you have been made a good person in Christ. If you have been raised, why are you raised? Because you were dead. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Set your minds, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. So when we start talking about this encountering God, when God encounters us and we cross from death to life, not from bad to good, but from death to life. We have a new way of thinking, and we have to put to death these death thoughts that we have from this good to bad paradigm, this comparison paradigm that we have. I mean, there's this crazy scripture that as we start to understand, God works everything together for our good, for our joy is a better translation. God works everything together for our joy, for our pleasure because when we are most satisfied in him he is most glorified in us john piper said that don't think i'm smart when we're most satisfied in christ so christ is going to give us what's best for us so that we are fully satisfied in him because when that takes place then we're naturally going to give more glory to god which is what he longs for is his name and his renown to be the praises of the earth right so when we start changing this paradigm from bad to good to death to alive, we have to start noticing where are some of these death thoughts we're having. Where is our mind to focus on the things of the earth and not focus on the things of eternity? So what would these ladies, what would this widow's thoughts have been if she wasn't focused on do I deserve this or do I not deserve this, but if she's focused on I'm alive in Christ, what would her thoughts look like? God, you're not punishing me. For this and this is where it starts to get real personal how many times have we thought that god is punishing us for something god you're not you're not punishing me for what's happening to my son you're not angry at me for what's taking place here 
Those are, those are death thoughts. That I don't deserve anything other than you. You are my prize, not these earthly possessions and those around me. You are the token that I'm after. You are the prize because you are now my father because I crossed from death to life. So does this hurt Jesus? Yes. I don't want to be here. But I'm not going to listen to these death thoughts that I deserve this or you're angry at me or I don't deserve this and I'm angry at you. I'm going to listen to my identity as a son or a daughter that if you do love me, that you're going to work this together for my good. If you do care for me as a son or a daughter, you're in control of this thing and I'm just going to trust you. So don't listen to these death thoughts that keep rolling into our mind of good versus bad. Focus on our new identity of Christ as sons and daughters that we were once dead and now we're alive in Christ. And really after that, nothing else matters. Everything starts to fall away. So, so two, two questions as we kind of land. Do you understand, and just being really honest with yourself, do you really understand that you were once dead and now you've been made alive in Christ? Is that something, we use this word gospel fluency and whatever. Uh, words matter, but that one's just a ridiculous word. Do you understand, is that something that comes up in conversation constantly? Not that I'm trying to be a good person, but I'm alive in Christ and Christ is grooming me into who he wants me to be. Do you understand that salvation means nothing about what you have done or what you will do? It's solely in the fact that God has encountered you in your dead state and raised you alive together with him just because of his goodness and his love and his grace. Do you understand that? Have you been walking through life going to be a Christian means to be a good person? I need to try harder to be a good person. That's what it means to be a Christian. So that's the foundation. If, if nothing else matters, if we don't understand that point, and here's my fear, just start talking to some of your Christian friends and we'll see how quickly people don't understand this point. That all they're trying to do is just to be a good person. That logic is just f- so flawed. Like, when is enough enough? Right? What, what like, what, uh, and never mind. I'm not even, it's just such a flawed logic to be good enough that there's nowhere to be found in Scripture. What is found in Scripture is that we were raised in Christ. Do you guys ever wonder what a baptism really looks like? That you are buried with Christ and you're made alive with Him? That we put you in the ground, which is the water, we bring you back up as a new creation. That's what we're doing. Or sprinkle, my Methodist friends, it's okay. Whatever you do. That's the symbolism behind that. So if we understand that foundation, then here's the most important question. What are the death thoughts that are going through our mind right now? Maybe here's some examples. Uh, Where do you feel like God is not present and you're angry about that? Where in your life, in your circumstances, do you feel like God is not present and that makes you angry about it? Where your mind is going, those are death thoughts that you're having. Those are not walking in your new identity. Those are death thoughts. Where do you feel like God has let you down or is constantly letting you down? What arena of life? What do you feel like you cannot open up to God about? Where are you doubting his goodness? Where are you doubting that he's actually in control? Where do you think that you know better than him? Where in your mind, what situation is going on in your life where you say, if I was God, I would do this differently? 
If it was up to me, I would have changed this whole thing around. The first step is to recognize those are death thoughts. Those are thoughts coming from our old identity, our old self. So we end every gathering the same way. man. We com- take communion together as a response to what God has done for us. But scripture, scripture is pretty clear about the heart that we have as we take communion. So here's what I want us to do this morning. Where are those death thoughts from? And as we take communion, can we repent from those? Can we say, God, I've doubted your goodness in this situation of my life. I don't believe you are good because of what this event that happened to me. If you were really good, if you were really in control, then this situation would have happened differently. That we're just like that mom walking down the road, angry because of what she's having to do, bury her own son. But she had no idea what was coming just a few miles later. So my plea to you is we have no idea what's coming in a few miles. It's not happening. Whatever's happening, whatever you're angry or bitter about towards God, it's not happening because you're not good enough, because you don't love him enough, because you're not tithing enough, because you're not serving enough, because whatever excuse you want to make. If we've been raised with Christ, what's happening is he is making us more like him. He's turning us into you. The, the big word is he is sanctifying us. Sanctification comes through trials. Growth comes through trials. Suffering is where the most growth comes from. So he's not left you. He's not forgotten about you. He has not left you high and dry, and he's not punishing you. He's walking with you. He's wanting to grow you. So what are the death thoughts that you have? What are thoughts that are keeping you from Christ instead of running after him? So I'm going to pray, and then we've got communion in the back and in the side. And I'll just challenge you. Let's just ask God. Let's just sit for a little while and try to figure out, man, what, where are these death thoughts? Where am I angry? Where am I bitter? What am I holding against him? And as we're let, ready, let's leave those at the table and take communion, remembering what Christ has done for us. Not because we were good. Not because we deserved his death on the cross for our sins. Because he has encountered us. He has pursued us. And that was not a one-time thing. That is a continual thing. So let me pray. Father, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for coming to us. That God has come to his people. That you long for a relationship with us. God, and and you didn't come just to make us good people. You didn't come to to make us stop doing bad things and start doing good things. God, you came. You sent your son to die to make us a new creation because we were dead in our sins. Because of what your son has done on the cross, now we are alive again. We're walking as new creations, as sons and daughters to the Most High God. So, Father, where are we still in our old way of thinking? God, would you speak to us this morning? Where are we still wrestling with the, I do or I don't deserve this? And I've been bad, God, so you can punish me. Or I've been good, God, so why did you let this happen? 
Where are we still caught up in the, the bad way of thinking that? And that's, that's the death. That's the old us. And where do we need to press into our new identity as sons and daughters that you are so loved in love with us? That your word said that there's nothing that we can do to outrun your love and your grace. That there's no punishment, there's no wrath for us anymore. That there's no way we deserve punishment because all that punishment was poured out on Christ on the cross. So when Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. That there's no more sin, there's no more condemnation for us. We are new creations in you. So there's no way you're punishing us. There's no way you're taking things away from us because you're angry with us. All that anger was poured out on Christ. That's just death thoughts eating into. That's the enemy pursuing us. So God, would you speak to our souls in this room, in this moment? Would you remind us of your love? Would you remind us of your grace? Would you remind us of your mercy for us? And Jesus, some of this bitterness that we've been holding towards you, some of this anger that we've got in our hearts that has created distance between you and I, God, would that be removed this morning by the taking of communion? Would we leave that literally at the cross as we break the bread which represents your bodies, we dip it into the juice which represents your blood. And when we leave those thoughts there, we leave those death thoughts there, when we walk in this new identity, this new confidence that you are our Father and because of what Christ has done, you are pleased with us. Death thoughts are only from the enemy. Only trying to hold us back to where we once were. So Jesus, what we're asking for this morning is freedom. We don't want to think that way anymore. We don't want to just try harder so that you would be pleased with us. God, we want more than that. We want a relationship with you. We want a true encounter with you that's going to change everything about us. Not a list of do's and don'ts to try to make you happy. That's, that's death thoughts. So church, I'm, I'm not going to say amen. We can just sit here and ponder and continue to pray. Continue in the spirit of prayer reflection my prayer for you this morning is that we would experience the freedom as sons and daughters that we would get rid of these death thoughts this anger and bitterness that we might have towards God we would stop living a good versus bad life but we would live a dead versus alive life so whenever you're ready communion will be open and we will respond through worship in a little bit but just listen and pray and confess and repent from these death